I like to think Jesus is a great person. Uh, I just, I, it's a, it's to me, it's a silly story. Jesus was the shepherd who basically was the leader of the pack and told people what to do. He would probably be the guy that I walked by and thought he was a homeless bum and ignored him, honestly. I'm sure that he would be saying something really profound and I'm afraid I might be ignoring it. I don't necessarily believe that any one person is God. I don't think that Jesus may have been God. However, I do believe that we all have divinity within us. I'm just trying to do the best I can down here. I, I, I believe it. That uh, the teachings of Jesus, uh, they ring true to me. This the way it makes sense to live that way, to, to love people instead of hate people, to, to look out for your fellow man instead of always trying to beat him down. wasn't white, <laughs> so I don't think that you could say that he's just here for white middle class people. Uh, if he really existed, uh, all for it. Um, too bad that there is no other people that, uh, like him nowadays. Jesus, I believe, was a liberal, and I think looking at where we're going, I think he'd be happy to see that people are becoming more and more accepting. Sure, I believe that Jesus was a historical person, um, but I don't believe the, the other things that have accrued around the story of his life. He's, he's like the pinnacle of love. It's idolization, basically. The idea that there's a human being that can be viewed as a god is, 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 is a tough, um, tough proposition for me to accept. Jesus, he loves people and he wants people in his family and he's not someone that pushes people outside, he's always inviting people in. I think I'm, I grow more curious about that every day um, uh, and, and how I can be a better person um, maybe by following his teachings and, and maybe it will be a, a fit for me and maybe it won't, but you know, I'll, I have a lifetime to figure that out. I just want to warn you, I, uh, when I preached in Alaska one time, actually at the same church Pastor Rob's at this morning, I had a guy tell me, now you're not going to do any barnyard preaching, are you? <laughs> and so, of course, I thought that was a southern thing, so I was wondering how he knew that. He said, if you do, I'm going to start doing this. So I hope I don't see any of you doing this out there this morning. <laughs> but no, in all sincerity, I make no apologies this morning. And it's not that I think you would want me to. But I have one primary agenda this morning, and that is to glorify and exalt the name of Jesus Christ, to give proper honor to the one that we owe our very existence to, to, to the one who has made it possible for us to step into this new life. See, my concern today is that we, the church, are at a crisis point. And by church, I mean the universal body of Christ. We are at risk of losing our understanding of who Jesus really is. And much more, we are at risk of losing the biblical understanding of what it means to follow him wholeheartedly, what it really means to give him preeminence in our life. I believe many of the challenges we face as a church come from the pressures outside the church. These outside pressures are strongly influencing the church to conform to the culture around us. These pressures from the culture are challenging and they're criticizing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a day of great advancements in science and technology. The rate of advancement is accelerating at a greater rate than ever before. Artificial intelligence, or AI, has become more and more of a reality than ever before. It's discussed all the times in the headlines in the industries that I'm involved in. They're now talking about AI replacing humans and jobs, and even jobs that used to be considered too complex for machines or robots. Man is achieving major breakthroughs in what they call nanotechnology or in the applied application of quantum physics. We live in an information age, the word metadata you hear thrown around a lot. Now there's a talk of a fourth major industrial revolution, and they're calling it Industry 4.0. We have drones with facial recognition capabilities that are, can supposedly scan your eyes and read human emotions. And this is where everything is trying to push. You sense the pressure. 
Due to the increased power of computing technology and the interconnectivity of all the devices, from appliances in your home to sensors and equipment on the manufacturing floor, another new buzzword has emerged called the Internet of Things. So these are things that are touching our lives. They aren't just being talked about, they're starting to impact our lives. I can go on and on, but my point is this, that mankind has seemingly advanced much in technology, and so much that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being pushed further and further to the fringes, to a place of irrelevance in the society at large. Mankind is becoming more and more reliant on his own capabilities to the point where he believes there is no God, or there's no need of God. But I once read the words of a wise man who said, there's nothing new under the sun. You see, what we marvel at and see as major advancements really fell in comparison to the works of our Creator. Instead, these advancements really become just another deception of Satan. These deceptions dupe us into believing that we can fix our own problems. This is at the heart of human philosophy that is empowered by the enemy of our souls. Man still believes in himself and his ability to solve problems apart from God. Because of the advancement, the world believes that following Christ is archaic and out of touch. However, the world fails to realize that it was God who created all the elements of the universe. God created the laws that govern the very science and physics that man uses to achieve his advancements. Man at his best can only mimic and copy what has already been created, and even poorly at that. Watching the news and other media outlets, it doesn't take long to understand that Christianity is under attack. It seems that in the name of tolerance, all other religions are tolerated except Christianity. Why is this? Why is, what, what causes such animosity towards Christianity? The answer is that Christianity exalts the stone that the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone. We see in Acts 4.11, He is the stone which was rejected by you. The builders rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. In Ephesians 2.20 it says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You see, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He is the reason for the great divide and animosity. In fact, he told us that the world would hate us and persecute us because it hated him. It says in John 15.20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. To better understand the nature of the animosity, we have to understand the pervading philosophies or worldviews that are shaping our highly advanced culture. Philosophies or worldviews are, are basically the prevailing attitudes, values, or beliefs that shape how a person views the world they live in. They are the paradigm that all aspects of our lives are filtered through. So what are the philosophies of our time? What are the worldviews that shape our culture? To understand these, we have to look no further than the New Age movement. And that's kind of an old term. But this movement may go by different names nowadays, but the basic tenets are still there and still working through our culture. At the root of it, through one avenue or another, man continues to offer his own man-made solutions for the ills of society, whether in the form of secular humanism or religious syncretism. Now those are kind of million-dollar words, so we'll define those for a second. Secular humanism believes that humanity is capable of mor morality and self-fulfillment without belief in God. So let's throw God out of everything. We, we can take this ourselves. Religious syncretism means the blending of two or more religious belief systems into a new system, or the incorporation into a religious tradition of beliefs from unrelated traditions. So a lot of mixing of religions. Let's borrow a little bit from here, let's borrow from there, let's, let's put it all together and, and see what suits us. As such, the tenets of the New Age movement claims that we stand at the cusp of an entirely new age of human achievement and potential. One that would unify the world and bring an end to war and an end to hunger through re redistribution of the world's resources and population control. I don't know if you hear these things going through our media. It will lead us to the conservation of the Earth's environment, result in genuine equality among all races and religions and between men and women, and provide a global principle that will unite the human family. Man, it sounds great but the world doesn't have the answers. As you can see at the core of this movement 
is a view that rejects the biblical revelation of God as revealed in Christ. According to this movement, Christ is only one of many religious leaders or influences that man may turn to because there are other ways, other ways that are equally valid. As J. Hampton Keithley says, increasingly our generation wants to take religion out of the realm of rational discourse and relegate it to the area of personal preferences and opinions. If there are 31 flavors of ice cream, why can't we not have similar, uh, similar variety in religions? The gods of the New Age movement are always tolerant of sexual preferences, feminism, hedonistic pleasures at almost any cost. Why shouldn't we each choose a religion that is compatible with our private values? In order to have a meaningful faith, it must agree with our deeply held beliefs. What works for you might not work for me. How many times have you heard that? I know I've heard it a lot. I don't know about you, but this certainly pinpoints the world we live in today. Because of the increased pressure from the rise of the New Age philosophy, or other things that are mixed with that, these philosophies that are confronting us today, there's no New Testament book that speaks with more relevancy to our modern dilemma than does Paul's epistle to the Colossians. As one commentator puts it, Colossians is God's polemic in rebuttal to many th kinds of delusions and heresies, but it is, it is especially relevant to what we see happening in the world today. Colossians, which represents him as the architect and sustainer of the universe, as well as the reconciler of all things, both earthly and heavenly, provides the church with the material that it may and that it must use. Suddenly, the epistle to the little flock in a declining city has become perhaps the most contemporary book in the New Testament library. Isn't it amazing that God, in his foresight, allowed this letter to a small Colossian house church to be written? It's amazing how this letter addresses the same struggles faced today by the church. It's the same deception with different clothes on. So before we study our text today, found in Colossians 1 and 2, let's look briefly at, at a little background to this epistle. So the, the word Colossae is how it's pronounced, by the way. So if I slip, I've always said Colossae, but it's Colossae. Colossae was an agricultural town on the southern bank of the Lycus River in the territory of Persia, which is considered modern-day Turkey today. Many scholars believe that Colossae was one of the least important churches that the apostle, uh, the apostle Paul wrote a letter to. It wasn't always this way. At one time, Colossae was considered a great city of Persia. But during Paul's day, the neighboring cities had grown even greater and in greater prominence than Colossae. And yet the message to Colossae with its high exaltation of Christ has become amazingly relevant in the 21st century. The Colossian church was founded by a convert of Paul's named Epaphras around AD 52. Many scholars believe Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians around AD 60, which puts this church at about eight years old a little less than twice the age of upcountry, just to give you some perspective. The town of Colossae was mainly made up of Gentiles, but there was actually a decent number of Jews. Uh, some scholars estimate there, there was around 50,000 Jewish inhabitants. But the church at Colossae consisted mainly of Gentile converts. A heresy, or what Paul called a philosophy, was apparently putting great pressure on and threatening the Colossian congregation causing some concern for Paul and Epaphras. There are many views on what this philosophy may have been. There are some that, that say it was an early form of Gnosticism. Others say not. However, the crux of it was to undermine the person and work of Christ and the sufficiency of the salvation believers have in him. My purpose today is not to deep dive into the Colossian heresy or philosophy except to point out that it was very similar to the types of philosophies we face today, especially in the New Age movement. My purpose is to look at Paul's response to this philosophy in his epistle, epistle to the Colossians and to glean what we can from these scriptures. And, and the purpose for me is to fortify our walk against these pressures in our culture today. However, before we move into our text, I do want to read to you a summary of the Colossian heresy or, or philosophy as stated by J. Hampton Keithley. He says, It seems clear that the Colossian heresy was an eclectic blend of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophic speculation, and Oriental mysticism, 
combined together with a Christian flavor or element. It was a satanic deception in the following way. While at its heart, it was a combination of Judaism and paganism, it bore the mask of Christianity. It did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone him. It gave Christ a place, but not the supreme place. This Christian facade made the Colossian era all the more dangerous. In other words, it taught that Christ was insufficient and that one must go beyond Christ into the fullness of what they had to offer. We find the same thing happening today with many of the cults that will likewise use some Christian terminology, but with completely different meanings. All the features found in this cult at Colossae would later be found to be full-blown Gnosticism. So it may have been an incipient form of Gnosticism combined with elements of Judaism. So again, we see this religious mixing, and we see borrowing from the culture and working at a religious system that, hey, there has to be more. It has to somehow involve us and not rest on the grace of Christ. So with that summary in mind, let's turn to our text beginning in Colossians 1 to find out how we can fortify ourselves against the false philosophies of our day. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of Colossians 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I want to stop there for a moment. So in the opening to the letter, Paul immediately in his, his salutation reminds the Colossians of a very important point. We find this point when Paul addresses the Colossians as the saints who are at Colossae. With these, word, Paul's, these words, Paul reassures the Colossians of their two spheres of existence. Number one, they are saints. So this is our spiritual, spiritual sphere of existence. Number two, they live geographically at Colossae. So this is our physical sphere of existence. Saints is the plural of the word, the Greek word hagios, which literally means consecrated or set apart ones. Those who have been set apart to God by God. But in scripture it came to mean set apart from the secular world to God alone as his special people for his use and purposes. We are reminded of this fact in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, where it says, But you once were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has, offered you, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is because we are now his special people, a holy nation, that Peter earlier exhorts the people of God to live holy, set-apart lives. We find this in 1 Peter 1.14. It says, as, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your, all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, in Colossians 1-2, Paul is describing our spiritual position in Christ. No matter where we are geographically, no matter what our circumstances are that we're facing, we are in Christ. So we should see ourselves in this way, as someone who is set apart to God, for God, and oh, by the way, who happens to live in Traveler's Rest or wherever you may live, or by the way, wherever you may be during the day, you're in Christ. And that was a very important point for the Colossians. So to fortify ourselves against the philosophies of our culture, we are to remember we are in Christ. It's in Christ that we find out our true identity. We find out who we really are. We can stand in confidence when we know this. Let's continue reading in the text beginning at verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. This gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, is also constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since you, the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our dear beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. 
So it's important to know that Paul was praying and interceding for the Colossians constantly. What an encouragement to know that our brothers and sisters in Christ can be praying for us. Also, it's clear that Paul was very dependent on prayer, as is evidence in his other epistles. His perspective was one of being totally God-dependent. The use of the word always points to a persistent prayer life. What an example for us to follow. We all should be persistent in prayer, interceding for our families and for each other. Also in these scriptures, Paul is addressing this thanksgiving and gratitude of God to the Colossians. He's thankful for their faith. He's thankful for their love. And he's thankful for their hope. Paul was thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus. The word faith is used here includes their initial trust in the person and the work of Christ. This faith was what brought them into a living relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Concerning faith, someone made, once made a very accurate analogy about where we are to place our faith. He says, a depositor's money is not safe in proportion to the depositor's faith in the bank in which the money is deposited. It is safe in proportion to the bank's solvency. So the Christian is not a Christian because he possesses faith, but because he possesses faith in Christ. It is not simply faith that matters. It is faith and its object. That's so true. Paul was reminding them that Christ was the object of their faith. The focus of their faith residing in Christ was stressed not only the initial act of trust in Christ, but also the present act of faith of one who seeks to live by the benefit of who and what Christ means to believers. Paul was also thankful for their love for all the saints. The emphasis here is on love, a love that was toward all the saints. The love is tied to the faith mentioned previously, indicating that love was a natural outpouring of their faith in Christ. This love should be the mark and fruit of us as believers who have fellowship with the Lord. We find this in 1 John 3, 14 and 23, where John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. A faith that is in Christ and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should always go hand in hand. We can't have one without the other. This is our evidence that we have stepped over into life through the blood of Christ. And finally, Paul was thankful for their hope, which was laid up in heaven. In fact, the Colossians' faith and love were due to their hope. Their hope was a great motivating factor and the reason for their faith and love, as you read it in this scripture. Hope is focused on that which is both future and not immediately seen. We see the word hope here in the Greek means Elpis, which literally means confident or expectant, expectation or prospect. So a confident expectation or prospect is what hope is. The exact content of our hope is defined by the following scriptures. In Galatians we read 5.5, 5, For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. So we have this hope of righteousness that we'll receive. We have it now and we'll have it in its fullness when Christ comes back. Again in Titus we read, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So we have the hope of Jesus returning to finalize our salvation. And finally in Romans, Romans 8, 24, it says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Our hope causes us to persevere through the trials of this life. So to fortify ourselves against the pressures of the philosophies of our culture today, we must live by faith that resides in Christ, and that faith must produce love for others. And we must live our lives in an expectant hope. Hope is key. Let's continue reading in verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, 
bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. Again, we find that Paul is interceding for the saints at Colossae. It's very important to understand the importance of what he's interceding for. He's interceding for their growth in the knowledge of God's will. Why is the knowledge of God's will so important? So that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And also that they will please Him. And that they will bear fruit in every good work. It would appear that the Colossians were doing very well in the spiritual growth department due to their strong faith in Christ, their love for all the saints, and their great hope. However, Paul knew that theirs, and for that matter, our spiritual walk would become stagnant if we didn't continue to grow in the knowledge of God's will. In 2 Peter we read, and, and this is just evidence of some more scripture that, that points to the fact that we should be growing and increasing in our spiritual walk. In 2 Peter 1.4, for, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Again, we see the idea of spiritual growth in Philippians. In Philippians 1.9 it says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless, blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to, to the glory and praise of God. There's a theme of increase and abounding more and more in our spiritual maturity. We see this theme throughout Scripture. Our walk with Christ is not meant to be static. It's easy to do that, to become complacent. As Christians, we can never sit still or rest on our laurels. We as people have a tendency to live out of the past or even the present experiences and to stick with what's comfortable for us. I know I'm guilty of that sometimes. It's easy just to keep the status quo. Since no one ever arrives at ultimate spiritual maturity in this life, there is always room for spiritual growth. The important question is, how do we gain such knowledge, and how does it manifest itself? What form is it to take? This is answered for us in the next statement, where Paul says, in or by all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Several things need to be considered here. Spiritual is the Greek word pneumatikos, which often means actuated or controlled by the divine spirit or pertaining to the divine spirit. The heretics had told the Colossians that they needed more knowledge and deeper wisdom beyond what they had been taught regarding the person and work of Christ. Now Paul shows them that they indeed needed more knowledge, but the knowledge they needed was the true knowledge of God's will. A knowledge that is controlled and directed by his spirit and strengthened with all power by his might. In general, the knowledge of God's will concerns the whole counsel of God's truth as it's found in scriptures regarding the person and the work of Christ. It is a knowledge that should lead us to Christ-like living in all the circumstances of our lives. Such knowledge gives discernment and enables believers to make choices that will glorify God in all the questions and issues that we face in this life. Also, we should be spending time in prayer so as to learn to hear and discern God's voice for these situations in our life. One of Satan's tricks is to turn believers away from the truth of the gospel and especially to keep them from understanding the sufficiency of salvation in Christ alone. 
The Greek construction of this phrase, that you may be filled, indicates potentiality. So there's a potential here that you may be filled. By this, Paul was telling the Colossians and us that God has designed every believer with a potential for being filled with the knowledge of his will. The fact that it's a potential means that it's not a given. In other words, we as believers have the potential to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, but we can be hindered by many things. These hindrances can come in the form of indifference or laziness or materialism or carnality or just wrong priorities. Or it can come because of false philosophies that guide us away from the truth of the gospel that we see in our society today. But there's more that goes with that. There are other reasons Paul gives to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Let's read again in verse 11. It says, Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience. Oh, that hurts. Steadfastness and patience. Joyously. So we have need to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that we can live a life of steadfastness and patience. That's not a popular term. <laughs> I've often taught my children that one of the key themes concerning our walk as believers is that we are to walk this life with steadfastness and patience, or another word for that is perseverance. Patience is the Greek word hupomane, which often means to abide or remain under endurance. It speaks of remaining under a trial without giving in, of an ability to endure or remain or be steadfast regardless of the intensity and the length of the testing. Hupamani is used in relation to the various kinds of trials that we face in life. Trials such as sickness or pain or financial loss, death of loved ones, warfare, or physical and spiritual weakness, satanic attack or persecution. The opposite of patient endurance is losing heart or giving up or running away or some form of man's many human escape mechanisms and substitutes. You see, we can walk through life's trials in one of two ways. Either through patient endurance or through giving up. Walking through trials with patient endurance is a strong indicator that we are placing our trust and confidence in God. And why can we do that? Because we know that He cares for us and has everything under control. Some commentators place the word joyously with steadfastness and patience. You can see in the scriptures on NAS, NASB, they, they separate it. But some put it with this verse and some with the verses that follow. The reality is, is that it would be theologically accurate to position it in either place. So that's exactly what we're going to do. With that in mind, let's take another look at Paul's statement concerning steadfastness and patience and add joyously to it. Wow. You mean that we're to walk through the trials of this life, not only with patient endurance, but also with joy? Absolutely. I don't know about you, but that's hard to do. But it says it right here. And by the way, we don't have to do this in our own ability because God will strengthen us with His glorious might, as promised in Scriptures. That's a pretty good deal. So to fortify ourselves against the pressures of the philosophies of our culture today, point number three is we must be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that we can live fruitful, a fruitful life for Him, walking in patient endurance, with joy. But there's more to this joy. You see, when Paul says we can have joy in the midst of our trials with patient endurance, this can only be true because we have a lot to be joyful and thankful for. Let's continue reading in verses 11b through 14. Now you're going to see joyously combined with the following scriptures. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So before we move on to what we have to be thankful for, I want to look at joyously again, but this time combined with giving thanks. Considering this word combination, I want to make a few points about thankfulness and gratitude. Number one, learning to live by joy and thankfulness is a key element in patient endurance. We have to have this to be able to walk something out in patient endurance. In all areas of the Christian life, this is required because it turns our focus from our puny selves to Jesus. Number two, as G.K. Chesterton once remarked, 
When it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. When it comes to life, the key thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. This is so true, isn't it? We have so much to be thankful for, but it's so easy to get caught up in our lives and forget that our very breath depends on God. It's so easy to see what's in front of us and get clouded by that. Number three, Thanksgiving is not some happy feeling of joy. Throughout scriptures, Paul commands Thanksgiving. Therefore, it must be more than a feeling that we can't control. It's actually something we can decide to do. In this respect, Thanksgiving can become something that we can discipline ourselves to do and actually grow in. The scriptures in Philippians 2.14 say to do all things without grumbling and complaining or grumbling and disputing. This can only be accomplished because we have a great gratitude for what God has done for us through Christ. Just as an aside here, I know that when I start feeling pressures coming on with my business, with just the things of life, it is so easy just to get caught up in feeling that pressure. And even though I've already been through a very interesting walk where God taught me I can trust him, I still find like a rubber band when it's stretched. I get pulled right back to a, 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 status, uh, or a, a status quo of reacting to things. But I have found, and I've been practicing this because it truly is a discipline, I have found that when I start thanking God, and I don't mean just a false, yeah, thank you. I mean really thinking about the things to be thankful for, much less what he's done for us. I see the whole situation change and my perspective changes. So that's a little bit of what I'm hinting at here. Number four, a thankful spirit keeps us aware that our lives depend entirely on God and not on ourselves. Thankfulness crowds out a prideful spirit and keeps our anxiety and fear at bay. It directs our feelings outward towards others instead of inward, where it can solidify in kind of this vicious self-pity that we get into. Maybe I'm just preaching to me. So to fortify ourselves against the pressures of the philosophies of our culture today, number four is we must have a thankful and grateful attitude for what Christ has accomplished in us and for us. Now let's look at why Paul says we can joyously give thanks. Paul lists four blessings that we should be thankful for. These blessings sum up the fact that Jesus has not only secured our deliverance, but has also given us the ability to live a new life in the midst of a fallen and, quite frankly, a satanically controlled world. Let's take a look at these four blessings. The first blessing, he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, qualified in the Greek here means to make sufficient or qualify or enable or make fit. It doesn't mean to make deserving. What are we qualified for? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Share in the Greek here means a part or a share, a portion of that which has been divided or apportioned. The words in the inheritance points to what has been divided out to the saints. So in this context, Paul is speaking of a lot or a portion that belongs to the saints in this, this life now and into the future. The second blessing that we should be thankful for is he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. We find in Colossians 2.14 and in Hebrews 2.14 an expression of this thought of being rescued. In Colossians 2 it says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Praise God. Hebrews 2.14, it says, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So going back to Colossians 1.13, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, the domain of darkness, the word darkness here means in Scripture that it carries kind of a symbolism of ignorance or delusion or sin or Satan. And domain in Greek means authority or power or ruling power. So here it refers to the dominion of Satan who exercises control and oppression over man and the world. So believers in Christ are delivered from this evil and dark kingdom. And when you look at the context here, there's actually a stronger meaning that we as believers have been severed from Satan's kingdom. So God literally severed us and brought us into his kingdom. 
The third blessing, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his son. Transferred here carries with it a meaning from ancient military conquest. When one empire won a victory over another, it was the custom to take the population of the defeated country and transfer it lock, stock, and barrel to the conqueror's land. We see an example of this when the people of the northern kingdom of Israel were taken away to Assyria and the people of the southern kingdom were taken to Babylon. So Paul says that God has transferred us, the Christian, to his own kingdom. That was not only a transference, but a rescue. So through Christ, man is liberated from Satan's grip and is now able, able to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's huge. <laughs> I think sometimes if, we were, if God were to peel back the veil and we would see the spiritual world, which is the reality we live in, I think we realize what we're being rescued from. I think we really walk in a sense of thankfulness. Finally, the fourth blessing. He has redeemed us and forgiven us our sins. In Colossians 1.14, again, it says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In whom stresses who we have redemption through. And that is only through Jesus Christ. The word redemption means a release effected by payment of a ransom or a redemption or a deliverance. The term redemption for the believer means that their forgiveness or a pardon or a cancellation of this obligation of punishment. To sum it all up, we can be joyously thankful and full of gratitude because Christ has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has res rescued us from Satan's rule over our lives, and he has transferred us into his kingdom. And on top of all that, he has provided for us an ultimate payment of ransom so that we can be free from sin. Amen. <laughs> My prayer is that we can truly grasp and understand what this means for us. Now I want to move on to the main focus of Paul's epistle. The exaltation and supremacy of Christ and his person and work. So Paul has greeted the Colossians. He has encouraged them and has interceded for them. It's obvious that Paul understands the philosophy that was challenging and putting pressure on them. But it's as if he's not even concerned with the details of this false philosophy. At least not to the point of warning them again in this section of scripture. Paul now launches into what many consider the most beautiful poem of Christ's supremacy in all of Scripture. It's as if Paul was saying, hey, these heretics are dangerous and you need to focus on what you've been taught thus far. But your true focus should be on Jesus and who Jesus really is. It may be that Paul knows that the Colossians are not being willingly unfaithful, but that maybe their convictions are just unformed and immature since they're young in the faith. Or maybe Paul realized the Colossians were thinking that this, this new philosophy was not really contrary to what they had learned already from Epaphras, but that maybe it was only going to add to what they had already learned. But Paul sees in this dangerous innocence a failure of the Colossians to understand what belief in Christ really means. His revelation to the Colossians about the true supremacy of Christ and what that means is the best protection for them and for that matter for us against any form of error. Let's now turn to Colossians 1, 15 through 20 to finish our text. Beginning in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is be the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, so without going into detailed, uh, a detailed exposition of what this text means, I want to discuss what this text is actually emphasizing about Christ that would help us as it helped the Colossians fortify ourselves against the philosophies of our time. Number one, if Christ is the image of God and all the fullness of God dwells in him, then the Colossians or us will not find fullness in anything else. He's it. 
Number two, if all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, were created by him, then he nullifies all the supposed threats posted by these powers. <laughs> they have no power. He created. God's plan, and number three, God's plan from before creation was to reconcile all things through Christ, and that design has never been revised. The Colossians or us do not need to be to need a supplemental type of salvation plan, and we cannot attain this peace and this reconciliation through heavenly visions or rigorous asceticism or any other mixture. And that word asceticism there means just religious discipline. Some people think if, think if they do without and discipline themselves a lot that somehow they're going to be closer to God. But it's not through that Christ has already done it. Number four, Christ is the supreme over all. And that supremacy displays itself most visibly in the church. Christ is the head of the body of the church and those who lose connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. If we lose that connection with him, we will wither and die. Number five, the supremacy of Christ over the whole universe assures believers of the sufficiency of Christ. So if he's supreme, he's sufficient. Therefore, they or we should not allow our hope in Christ, the firstborn of the dead, to be shaken when it's challenged or belittled by others. Which, turn on the TV. Do you feel a little belittled today? But we shouldn't be shaken because Christ is sufficient. Number six, if Christ sustains the entire universe, then Christ can sustain us as individual believers. So, point number five to fortify ourselves against the pressures of the philosophies of our culture today, we must recognize and walk confidently in the finished work of Jesus. He is the be-all and the end-all. He is the answer. What more do we need? So what are we to do from here? Let's jump to Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 it says, Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So the phrase, so walk in him, in the Greek literally means in him be continually walking. Emphasis is placed on in him, meaning Christ is the sphere of our walk. And the word walk means to conduct oneself or his life or the way he lives. So with every step in life, we are to draw from his life as the source of as the force and the course of our lives. We draw from Him. Rooted in the Greek means to cause to take root, to become firmly rooted or fixed. We must never move away from Christ as a source and resource of our spiritual lives. Built up in the Greek means to build up or to build further or build on something. The context of this word describes an ongoing process. The steady growth of the believer's spiritual life it's also the, the emphasis is on God's grace to accomplish this. He is our source. We are to look to His grace and have dependence on Him for our spiritual growth. Established in the Greek here means to make firm or establish or strengthen. Again, the context and emphasis is on God as the source. We are to look to God's grace to establish and strengthen us in this walk. And finally, in your faith can be understood in this context as in the faith. The faith indicates the body of revealed truth of the gospel message. So in closing, I want you to know that we don't have to succumb to the pressures and the philosophies of our culture. We don't have to feel as if we need more than Christ or as if somehow the gospel is inferior. Jesus Christ is everything. The only way we can ever make sense of life and find our own way in it is to recognize that Christ is the uniting point of our transcendent God and His activity in the arena of human history. Christ is the key to understanding the meaning of creation, the purpose of life and its goal. We see in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You might ask, what does Christ have to say to a world which humans have the power to clone animals and alter the genetic makeup of plants and animals? 
But Colossians answers these questions by saying that only in Christ can we ever unveil the mystery of God's purpose in our world. Colossians also confirms that Christ is a cohesive force that sustains and holds it all together. He holds all creation together. It's interesting that even those who do not acknowledge Christ's reign and supremacy and those who actively oppose him are actually entirely dependent on him whether they know it or not. It says in Job 34, 14, If he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. I feel kind of dependent on him right now. I warn you at the beginning that I'm not here to exalt or glorify anyone else but the name of Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning that you have all you need in Jesus Christ. I make no apologies. You, you don't have to make no apologies. I don't have to make apologies. We have to search nowhere else, for He is all we need. We don't have to be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. The public discourse may say, take His name out, but that is the power in which we stand. We do not have to be ashamed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we simply praise you for your finished work in Christ. We praise you that Jesus is all we need. That there is nothing and no one else that needs to be added. It is a completed act by the God who created and who continues to sustain all things. Lord, I ask that your Son become real in our lives. That we will truly come to understand that our lives are hidden in Christ so that it is no longer we that live but Christ that lives in us. May we truly live in the fullness of this truth. And Father, I pray for each and every person in this building today. Holy Spirit, may you direct these truths to their innermost thoughts until it becomes a reality in their heart. I pray for your blessings, your direction, and your provision over each and every one here. And I also pray that you will bless the fruit of our missions team in Alaska. Lord, we pray all these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And we give you praise. Amen. God bless you. I love you. And I know for a fact that Pastor Rob wishes he was here. He loves to preach. And I hate stepping into his shoes, to be honest with you. He's incredible. But he loves to preach, and it shows. And he wishes he were here, quite honestly. But this is a beautiful mission that they're on uh, in Alaska. But he can't wait to get back to this pulpit. So I know he would say to tell you he loves you. And God bless you.